fourth Sunday of Lent today, um, and and it brings us to a not a very Lenten passage. It's actually kind of a joyful passage, and so um, we're going to read from Luke 15, our gospel reading, beginning in verse 11. You might recognize it. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father... I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. His father said to his servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and his father, your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go with him. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and was found. Jesus, only you know this love. It's there for all of us, but you're the only one who can understand how profound it is. Help us to see that a little bit better this morning, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, um, I've been listening to this audiobook the last couple of days. Called, I read it back in college, um, I don't know, maybe in high school too. It's called Siddhartha. Um, it's from like the 30s. <laughs> um, and the one I remember had like this green cover, I don't know. Um, it's written by a German guy, Hermann Hesse. Um, on the surface, it looks like it's this story about this Siddhartha, like the, the Buddha, and sort of set in the time of um, the beginning of Buddhism as Buddhism sort of came out of Hinduism. Um, but you read it and you're like, wait a second, this is, uh, 
not actually that. This is very clearly like a Western <laughs> version of like, I'm going to go discover myself by trying all of these different things, right? It's very much like a Western individual sense of, I've got to go find my enlightenment, right? So achievement wrapped up in some of the Eastern ideas uh, and, and images. But the story, <laughs> the story here is this, um, as you sort of take this Western story and you wrap it up in an Eastern image, this is actually the same thing we do with the prodigal son <laughs> all the time. Namely, in the title, we think that this story is about the prodigal son, right? As, as somebody in Jesus' day coming to read this, they would have seen this the other way, right? They would have seen all the family dynamics that are going on. We all, a lot of us kind of grow up and we just assume. I just assumed when I turned 18, I didn't have a place to live anymore, right? Like I needed to go figure that out. I was getting kicked out of the house and I had to go get a job or go to school or go do something else. I was not welcome at home, Okay. <laughs> And that's, that's kind of this, this idea. My wife, the, as soon as I talked to her parents, hey, can I marry your daughter, please? I already proposed, but can I please marry her? Um, the thing they told me, you always have a home with us, right? You can always, not my parents were going to let me be homeless, but they wanted me to think that, right? They wanted me to think that. So there's this sort of cultural difference in the way we approach these things. The prodigal son would have been understood Right? If he comes and says, Father, give me everything that's coming to me, it's this, Dad, I wish you were dead. Okay, Just go ahead and cash in that 401k. I know the taxes are going to be awful, but I want you to cash it in and give it to me because I want what is mine. In our world, the stories that we like are stories of individuals who come to a realization about themselves kind of this hero's journey, right? I am the center of the world, and I go through these series of events and experiences, and then I come to a realization, and now I'm a different person, right? But what's the point of all of that? I, me. It's what happens to me that matters most. The prodigal son is not a story about the son. It's a story about God. And so often we misread the Bible because we think that it's a story about us, and it's really a story, not even about God's love for us, but about God's love for his world so that his world will serve his ultimate glory and goodness and purpose. Right? We're not the center of the story. It's the same thing with Joshua's Israel at Gilgal in Joshua 4 and 5. Israel, we kind of forget this. They come up out of Egypt, and in order to come out of Egypt, what do they have to do? they got to go through the Red Sea. God splits the Red Sea, brings them out to Sinai, gives them the law. They wander around the desert for a little while. Okay, But that first generation that came up out of Egypt that was slaves was disobedient. They were still trying to figure out how to be... They've been slaves of Egypt so long, they're figuring out how to be servants of God. And in that process, they don't do the very basic thing that they're supposed to do. <laughs> Right? They don't circumcise their children, which maybe sounds weird to you and me, but the point of it is they don't do the very basic thing that says this is how you know who you are. They don't do the initiation ceremony. They don't do the very thing that binds them and their children to God, that looks to their future. Right? This is not just about 
I'm go- I got to do these empty rituals. Okay? This is about, are you going to keep your side of the promise? Are you going to do your part so that I can do my part? And Israel doesn't even do the very basic thing. We discover after they come through the Jordan, right? God opened up the Red Sea. Now God is opening up the Jordan. You got to come through water to get where God's going. God's taking you, okay? Another sermon for another day. But you got to come through water. God stops up the Jordan, brings them through. They pull up these stones. They set up a big 12-stone altar. It's like a little mini Stonehenge where they can remember what God has done for them in the wilderness. And after they set this up, then Joshua finally tells us that they were not circumcised in order for them to go and take the thing that God wants to give them. If they're going to receive the gift that God has for them, if they're going to live into the promise, they have to, they got to do their part. They got to get circumcised. And it's a lot better to do that when you're eight days old (laughs) than later, okay? (laughs) You want to do this at eight days old, I promise you. (laughs) And so Joshua has to go and get the flint knives out and sharpen those up and circumcise the whole nation. Well, the, the male half of it. But this whole time that they were in the desert, this whole time, that they're wandering around. This whole time that they're eating, you know what they're eating every day? Every day, every morning they wake up and God's got bread on the ground for them. They don't have to farm. They don't even have to kill their sheep if they don't want to. God's just like, here's food. I'm going to throw it on the ground. Pick it up and eat. Huh? Oh. Thank you. I got nervous looks. (laughs) This whole time, they had the leadership. Moses is walking with them through all of this stuff. But they don't come under the knife. They don't want to put themselves under the knife. They're willing to follow. They're willing to go as long as it sort of keeps them status quo. Right, Pastor Cody's been talking about they're still kind of longing for the leeks and onions of Egypt, this whole kind of thing. They're even sort of looking backward. But they don't want to come under the knife. They don't want to be changed Deeply, where it hurts, where they take their kids and, I mean, it's one thing if it's you, it's another thing if you're taking your kids and you're going, here, put them under the knife. That's a hard moment. So there's still this part of them that is unchanged, that's unsubmitted. And Israel has to give up the idea. Here's the point. Israel has to give up the idea that they can be the hero of their own story. That they can be the subject. They've got to submit to God's future for them. Say, Lord, it's your future that I want. It's not my own. Because if Israel had their way, I mean, you stay in the desert and you pick bread up off the ground. What God is asking them to do is to trust them that instead of the thing that's been happening for four decades, the thing that he's going to have them do is walk into a land full of people with armies who live in cities with walls. And God says, I'm going to drive them out for you. Full of giants, people who already have established 
vineyards and tangerine groves and all this kind of stuff. God says, are you going to trust me to take you more deeply into the promise? Why not stay out in the wilderness, live unfulfilled? It doesn't require very much of you. You do the minimum, and you get the benefits. It's a lot like the elder son. The son who doesn't run off into a far country, squander his dad's riches with prostitutes, end up feeding pigs and eating pig food. The good son. This is part of the, the family dynamic that we miss, because again, we think it's all about the younger son, but they would have understood this whole thing. This is about the whole family. It's about the younger son who squanders stuff, but it's about the older son who doesn't. And who comes and says, Father, you never give me anything. You never give me anything. And I'm here, and I wake up, and I go out in the field. I don't even get a baby goat to party with my friends. But you know what? We have no indication that that son ever asked. We have no indication that he ever asked for anything. Because everything in his relationship with the father tells us that this is a son who does his duty and no more. Who does the bare minimum of what's asked and he doesn't do anymore. He doesn't want a relationship with his father. He doesn't want to know his father. He doesn't want his father to know him. He doesn't want to come under the knife. He's just trying to hang out until he gets that inheritance. He's just trying to survive until he can push this thing forward into the next generation, and now he's going to receive all that the father has. How common is it for so many of us Pursue a kind of life that's faithful in the externals. We want the promise without the risk. We show up, we read and we pray, we come to the table, we make sure our kids go to Sunday school. We don't want the risk. We don't want to come under the knife. There's still some of us that's, some part of us that's unsubmitted. There's still some part of us we hold back for ourselves. And then we wonder why we're unfulfilled. We wonder why we don't know the Lord's joy. We wonder why we don't know the hope that people talk about. And I really think it's like James says, you do not have because you do not ask. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, right? Every, everything good in this world, God is desperate and eager to give us. You do not have because you do not ask. The younger son, on the other hand, asks plenty. <laughs> Father, give me everything. I want it all. And he's a lot like our world. We live in a, in a squandering world. We live in a world that loves, if you want to spend a million dollars, it's real easy to spend a million dollars. Right? 
I mean, it's like one house. But beyond that, like, <laughs> there's a lot of different ways you can sort of break that up. We live in a squandering world. I was, <laughs> I was talking to a guy the other day. Oh, man, he's like, oh, he's kind of limping. And he's not that old, and he actually used to be like a semi-pro athlete. And I'm like, what's going on? He's like, I got gout. I'm like, gout? You're like an English king from the 1200s? Like, what do you mean you have gout? That's like a... <laughs> To me, I'm like, this is, this is like a, I don't know, my only experience with it is in like books about the Middle Ages, honestly. We get rich people diseases in our country, right? We don't die of starvation. We die because we're like eating way, way, way too much. We have this world where we're just like overloaded with good things. We're overloaded with, I don't know if it's food, but calories, right? And it's so easy to see the ways in our world that we have prioritized ease over faithfulness. It's so easy to see the ways that we've said, well, I'll follow God as long as I'm not you know, tired, or I'll follow God as long as I'm not too hungry, or I'll follow God as long as it doesn't cost me too much. Or, I mean, we do this kind of stuff all the time. I'll follow God as long as. Because we live in this squandering world that says, ultimately, to follow God, I've got to be the center of the story. And as soon as I'm not the center of the story anymore, I start to doubt whether or not this is really God. As soon as it doesn't make me feel very good, or it sort of grates against my cultural sensibilities, then I kind of redefine God in a different way. And I think, as I think about the younger son here, you know, I've said it before, we don't desire too much, we desire too little. It's not that we have too many desires. It's that we allow all of the little desires to be the thing that drives us. We allow all the little stuff to guide and direct and form and shape our decisions and our lives. Meanwhile, God is saying, I've made everything available to you. You're aiming too low. I want you to aim at heaven. I want you to aim at perfection. I want you to aim at, at holiness. Desire more. Want more. You know, if you're caught in, in lust, you know the problem with lust? It's that it reduces the person you're lusting after to just a little bit of the thing. It reduces them to one tiny little part of who they are. If you wanted that Whole person, that would be wonderful. We call that a holy and rich marriage. It's the same thing with greed. The problem with greed is not that you want too many things. It's that you want them only to yourself. It, the people who can embrace poverty, the people who can embrace generosity, who are just able to like receive stuff and then immediately turn around and give it away. The glory of that, the wonder of that, is that they're not possessed by the object, but they see what the object is for. That the object, whether it's money or food or some time or your house, all of those things, they're here to lift up, to raise up, to glorify God. The problem is not that we want too much, it's that we want too little. We flatten these things out into like a cheap version of themselves. 
And the one good thing I've gotten out of listening to Siddhartha again <laughs> is when he's at his best, they at, the character asks Siddhartha, what, do you, what can you do? You know, he's like this monk kind of figure. He says, I can think, I can wait, I can fast. Those are his three skills. <laughs> and the point of it is, he didn't have to do anything until it's the right time. Nothing's going to pressure him to act out of anxiety. Nothing's going to pressure him to act out of hunger. Nothing's going to pressure him to act out of a wrong motive. He can think, he can wait, he can fast. Man, those Christians were able to do that. We can think because we know whose we are. We know we belong to God. And no, you know, beer commercial or pressure to succeed, none of that's going to actually move us. We know how cheap that is. We can wait because we know that the one who is ultimately redeeming all things is still on his way. It's not our job to fix the world. That's God's job, and we can wait on the Lord. And we can fast. We don't have to be owned and, and, and conquered by our desires. Instead, we can give them up to God. So these desires that we have, they point us to a greater reality. The crazy thing about Luke 15, if you know the, the context, the background that Jesus is speaking in, you know the, who he's talking to is supposedly the holy people, it's Pharisees. They're the elder brother, the ones who do all the right stuff and don't know the Father. The ones who read their Bible and memorize their verses and, and, and teach and show up and tithe and even serve and give stuff away, but, but don't know the Father. There's no love in it. And the younger son, the people Jesus are hanging out with are the tax collectors and the prostitutes and all of the people who socially are like way, way, way on the outside. But the people who Jesus looks at and says, you're mine. You're my people. You're the ones I'm going to identify with. Why? Because they're sinful? No. Because there's still some hunger for God alive in them. And, and oftentimes when you talk to people who are living sinful lives, what you discover is they know they're living sinful lives. You don't have to convince them of that. They know something's wrong. They know that there's a problem deep in who they are. The Pharisees think they're over it. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, they know they're sinful, so that's who God wants to come to. That's who Jesus comes and spends his time with. It's the sick who need a doctor, not the well. So the younger son, his, even though he's in the mud in a pigsty, and it's not just mud, that's what pigsty are, even though he's trying to eat this stuff, out of the very bottom of a pigsty, the thing that is still alive in the younger son is this spark. This spark that says, my father will take me back. My father has good things. He's got this wonderful house and he'll feed me and I can live there. I'll be invited into his presence, even if it's just as a servant and not as a father. So I don't know, is your heart alive? Do you still have the spark? Do you still have the hunger? That when you were younger, when you were first a believer, when, whenever it was, do you still have that fire that's, that's in you that says, Lord, I want to know you. I want to spend 
time with you. It's more important that I know you than that I fulfill all the external stuff. It's more important that I follow you than it is that I fast. It's more important that I come hard after you than it is for me to somehow live a life that other people see as respectable or successful. I think we thought in the West, in the United States, I don't know, whatever it is, if we solved all of our physical problems that we'd be better off, if we made food available to everybody so nobody's starving anymore, if there was enough money for everyone, if everybody had indoor plumbing and we didn't get cholera anymore, if everybody could read and we had public education so that people had access to the classics, right? And all of you guys who just finished, I don't know, what, Moby Dick or Shakespeare or something, no, we don't read that stuff. We can all read, but what do we spend our reading on? <laughs> Twitter? <laughs> Newsweek? I don't know, stuff that ultimately doesn't matter all that much. And instead, we have a world where people are dying from despair and depression and suicide and anxiety. I mean, this stuff is rampant in our world. We've solved, essentially, all of the outside problems. But that doesn't make the spiritual hunger go away. That doesn't make the deeper need disappear. If anything, it only intensifies it. It only makes it worse. And so the image I've been captured by this week is the younger son on the road home from the pigsty. He's left the far country, and he's walking home to his father. And do you know what the good news is for the younger son when he's on the road coming home? The father's judgment. He's going to throw himself at the feet of the father and say, Dad, judge me. In fact, I'll do it for you. I'm not a son anymore. I'm a servant. Demote me. Throw me out. Let me live way out in the hut on the corner of the back 40. I don't even need to come. Just, I just, just like bread is good. I, I will live with bread and I'll go work the field. Right? I'm going to judge myself for you. The good news to the younger son is judgment. And this is what we've done in our world is we have erased judgment. We've erased it. We've erased it because it doesn't feel good. But a world without good judgment is not somehow a world without suffering. A world without good judgment is, is not a world without suffering. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of judgment where we just look at somebody and and assume who they are by what we see on the outside and immediately assign them a category. Okay, That's not the judgment I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of judgment where we say, well, God is the only one who can judge, and so I just stand off here, and I can't actually make any discernment into anyone's life. The judgment in the younger son's life is good news because it would free him from his suffering by enabling him to come back into relationship with his father. Because that relationship meant something, and he did something terrible when he asked for that inheritance. He did something terrible. And he needs to know that the father knows that he did something terrible. And that needs to be addressed. It needs to be brought up. It needs to be recognized 
brought to the surface, given light and air so that it can heal. And once it can heal, something else can begin to happen. But when that happens, he's going to put that younger son under the knife. It's going to put him to the pain. It would cut. But in cutting, it would heal. So the father's judgment on the road outside of his house is like the circumcision at Gilgal. It's the restoration of Israel. It's the renewal of the son. It's, it's the hope of the father's promise. It's bringing them back under the tent of his word, and it is his word that is real. There's a scene um, in the show which nobody should go watch called Breaking Bad. <laughs> I find this stuff by Googling it, not by consuming it all, okay? So if you don't know the show Breaking Bad, um, it's, it, it's a show about a, a meth dealer in New Mexico, okay? Uh, who, he's a high school chemistry teacher, and, and he gets, it's from a few years ago, high school chemistry teacher uh, gets cancer, and so he uses his skills to be able to pay for his treatment, um, which in his case, is cooking a particularly virulent brand of, of meth. Um, and he brings along him, alongside him one of his old students, uh, who in the show is called Je his name's Jesse Pinkman. Um, and, and Jesse, the one thing he has going for him is he's a drug dealer. Okay, So that's, his, that's what he offers to the team. Um, and, and, and as the show sort of moves along, Jesse ends up doing something that he really should not have done. He, he kills somebody in cold blood. Um, and that's not, that, that's, a, that's a bad moment in your life, right? He is no longer who he thought he was. He thought he was somebody who dealt drugs because he was given a bad hand in life, but he discovers actually, no, maybe I'm kind of a bad guy. And now he's got to deal with that. So the scene I'm talking about, Jesse is in therapy, all right? He's in a group therapy session, and he's talking about this. But he, he he says that he killed a dog instead of a person because you're in group therapy and you don't want to get arrested, right? So he confesses that he, he killed this dog when he didn't have to. And he's torn up about it. He's sad. He's breaking down. He, he's angry at himself. And the group leader says, Kind of the guy probably, he kind of looks like me, like white guy beard glasses, okay? <laughs> Group leader says, we're not here to sit in judgment. We're not here to sit in judgment. Jesse's response, why not? Why not? Maybe she's right, one of the other people in the group. You know, maybe I should have put it in the paper. I should have done something different. The thing is, if you just do stuff and nothing happens, what's it all mean? What's the point? Oh, right, this whole thing is about self-acceptance. The leader says, kicking yourself doesn't give meaning to anything. Jesse, so I should stop judging and accept no matter what I do. Hooray for me because I'm a great guy. It's all good. No matter how many dogs I kill, I just, what, do an inventory and accept? Hey, Jesse, I know you're in a lot of pain. No, you know what? Why I'm here in the first place is to sell you meth, he says to everybody in the group. You're nothing to me but customers. You okay with that? You accept? The group leader says, no, I don't accept that. 
Jesse's response is about time. Here's my point. Total non-judgment, self-acceptance. As he says, it's all fine. You just do a self-inventory and move on, right? Which is kind of group therapy sort of speak. Total non-judgment creates a moral situation that is impossible for our souls to bear. We need judgment. We need it in order to be able to be cut in a way that heals so that we can move forward. Self-acceptance by itself just creates a world in which our suffering may be reduced, but to what ends? It doesn't actually usher in the new creation that we all long for. It doesn't actually bring restoration. It doesn't actually heal anything. All it does is just quiet the feelings. This kind of self-acceptance and non-judgment rejects the fact that we're made for something better. We're made for something higher. And all of the texts this morning, Joshua, what are they made for? Why are they getting circumcised in the first place? So they can go into the promised land. So they can go into this good and perfect land that God has made for them that's flowing with milk and honey. Why does the son come home? So that he can enter the father's feast. So that he can come into the house. What does Paul say? Christ has been made sin on your behalf so that anyone who is in Christ, the old has passed away, new creation, the old thing is gone. The old man is dead. And if you are in Christ, if you've been reconciled to Christ, he has given you the ministry of reconciliation so that the new creation breaks into the world through you. Through you. Through the church. Through us as we encounter the world. But if we want to know that, if we want to enjoy that, we have to learn to discern got to learn to come under the knife. See, the bold Christian claims that there really is something that is good. And there really is something that is evil. And the things that are evil don't fit in God's world. They don't fit in God's new creation. And God is desperate. Jesus is passionate about bringing that new creation into the world even now in this generation through us. We're being called out. And where we're called out, I hope we'll come under the knife to present ourselves to the Father and say, Father, I've sinned. And I need to be made new. The old is, it wants to go, and I need the new to come. I, I want to come into the promised land where there's all this food ready for me. And it's going to take some humility, and, and it's not actually going to feel all sparkly and wonderful all the time. It's kind of a lot of work, this new creation. But it's work that's full of God's life. It's work that's full of the Father's presence. And so we come into the feast. We submit ourselves to his transformation. We seek God in prayer and in fasting. We devote ourselves to the scriptures and to the fellowship of the believers. Sometimes that will feel like judgment. 
oftentimes it feels like conflict in the body of Christ. Where Christians who both ought to love each other and, and, and who do both love Jesus can't figure it out. Can't figure out how to care for each other. And so this new creation begins to look like submitting to one another in love. It also looks like standing up for the things that really matter. Discerning when to judge and when to have mercy. You notice in, in the Joshua passage, what is the cutting that brings life? It's actual physical cutting with a knife. In Luke, the cutting that brings life is that the father runs out and meets the younger son who's desperate and hugs him and pulls him in and says, you've already judged yourself. There's no need for me to bring judgment on you. Instead, what am I going to put on you? New clothes, a ring, sandals on your feet. I'm going to restore you to your position. This life in the new creation is the wisdom to know how to walk that road. But it begins with the conviction that what we are doing here is real. And what we're doing here is founded on God's promise. So last thing before we come to this table and eat this meal, this manna, this feast, this, this beginning of the new creation, is that we are reconciled to Christ and we're reconciled to each other, but not for our own sake. It's so that we can reconcile the world. That's what Paul says. You've been reconciled and now... You've been given the ministry of reconciliation. You do all of this so that you can be the place where the world says, I need to be made whole. Where do I go? And we in our brokenness are able to say, come to the one who has healed me. We are the ambassadors of the new creation. He says, go read that Corinthians passage. He says, you are Christ's message. You are Christ's appeal. You are Christ's sermon. And having been reconciled to Christ, be reconciled to one another. So come to the table this morning. Come and eat in joy and in hope that because Christ has been broken, because Christ has been cut, there's a place for you in this family. There's a place for you in this body. Jesus, I know that without you, we have nothing. Lord, without the work that you have done in us, we have nothing to offer the world. So Lord, I, I pray that we as your church would be like the younger son on the road coming to you this morning. Saying, Father, I know I failed. Father, I know that what I have to offer is not enough. But I also know that you're the creator. 
And you can work your new creation in me. You can work your new creation in us. And we can discover, Lord, that we may not be the hero of our own story. But we're the one in whom the real hero is working. Lord, make us new. Make us whole, we pray this morning. Amen.